We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. I'd encourage you to bring your Bible. I don't really like the idea. You know, a lot of churches have big screens at the front and they always put Scripture up on the screen. And essentially what it does is it teaches people not to bring their Bible. And therefore, they're not learning how to find their way around in the book. They don't know where the books are. They don't know how to find uh, the books when they're speaking with someone or trying to give an answer. So I encourage you to bring a Bible, learn how to use the Bible, and know your way around in it. Hebrews chapter 11 is, of course, the most famous chapter of the book of Hebrews. But as I pointed out in our previous studies, the real heart of the book of Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 10. And Hebrews chapter 10 ends with a statement, if you'll just notice in Hebrews 10, he tells us in verse 38, the just shall live by faith. Now what he's going to do is take chapter 11, 12, and 13, and he's going to develop a theme that is common in all of Paul's epistles. You can find it over and over and over. I think I've found something like 10 places in the epistles of Paul where you find these three words together, faith, hope, and love. Chapter 11 is faith. Chapter 12, hope. Chapter 13 is love. And we'll see how all that develops. Just before we begin, let's once again ask God's blessing on our time together and uh, pray that he will open our hearts and our minds and feed us from the banquet table of his grace tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the privilege of gathering ourselves together, not like believers in so many parts of the world where they have to hide or they fear retaliation or persecution for their gathering together. Uh, we at least at this time are still able to gather ourselves together without any fear of attack or retribution. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for this home. Thank you for BJ opening her doors to us. And I thank you for each and every one who's come. And I know that uh, with the crowd that is here tonight, there are many <coughs> different needs, uh, many different uh, burdens, concerns, questions. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can meet each and every one of those needs. And so we humble ourselves right now and ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would take control of everything said and done while we are gathered together here, that you would open up your word and make it clear and understandable. Help us not only to receive it and believe it, but to implement it in our lives in the days ahead. As we know that the world is increasingly evil, let us as those Colossians shine as lights in a very dark world. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Just touching on what we have already seen in Hebrews chapter 11, he starts out by saying, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things that are visible. 
There are four things that are characteristics of faith. Faith is substance. Uh, the word substance I pointed out to you last time, used five times in the New Testament, generally translated confidence, but that's not really the way that it's being used here. Uh, the author is consistent with his earlier use in Hebrews 1.3 when he spoke of Jesus as the express image of the Father. In other words, the Father is invisible. No man can see God. No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or he has revealed him, John tells us in John chapter 1. So I think the point here is that faith is the visible evidence of that which is yet invisible. The things hoped for include all of the promises of God that have to do with our resurrection, uh, with our entering into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the offer of eternal reward for faithful acts done on this earth, and ultimately sharing his presence and his kingdom forever and ever. Uh, when we talk about the kingdom of, of God, how can you see the kingdom of God? Well, what the author is telling us, and John, of course, in 1 John, stresses this quite a bit. We are the evidence. This gathering here this evening, gatherings all over the world, gatherings that Nan and I have been in, in India and in Pakistan and, um, you know, places all over the world, when you have those little groups or in Vietnam as uh, the people there gather in constant uh, anticipation that they'll be arrested, there's the evidence. The love of God being shown from believer to believer is evidence. The love of God being shown from believer to unbeliever. The fact that the believer has the capacity, we don't always do it, but we have the capacity to love our enemies. We have the ability, in fact, the command to pray uh, for those who spitefully use us. And that includes politicians. And we pray for them and we pray for their best. Why? Because the love of Christ, as Paul says, compels us because we judge that if one died for all, then all are dead. And he died so that those who live, that is we who are believers, would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us. So substance is the first thing that we see about faith. It gives substance to all the things that we hope for, the evidence of things not seen. And this is a little bit of a restatement, but it actually takes it uh, into a little bit higher and deeper realm, uh, expanding the, the thought. Uh, the idea here is that the evidence of that which is invisible of those things that are not seen, the unseen spiritual realities, of course, not only deals with heaven, not only deals with the kingdom of God, but it deals with the war that we're engaged in right now throughout the world and, and throughout the universe. We refer to it as the angelic conflict. There are spiritual realities that man cannot see, and yet we give evidence of those spiritual realities. We realize that as uh, I taught recently in Habakkuk, there's a spiritual war that is raging behind the veil. And the reason that we have wars on this earth, the reason that we have crime on this earth, the reason that there is so much evil on this wor uh, world is because of that invisible struggle, that battle that's going on. And so we give evidence of that as well. 
And the evidence is uh, really both personal. We could say, for example, that substance is personal to us. Evidence is public to the world around us of invisible spiritual realities. And then he goes on to say in verse 2 that by it the elders, and this is a reference to Old Testament saints, he's about to give us examples here in Hebrews 11, received a good testimony. The word testimony is martyreo. Martyreo, of course, is where we get martyr from, uh, but it refers to a witness or a courtroom evidence. And so the testimony that they received was testimony from God and it's recorded in his word that their lives were pleasing to him. We're about to see Enoch, and we're going to see that Enoch was pleasing to God. They received testimony. The testimony comes from God to those who are faithful, but it also goes from those who are faithful out to the world around them. And then fourth, understanding. We have an understanding of creation and of history that unbelievers cannot attain to. We accept the Word of God. In the Old Testament, we begin the whole corpus of Old Testament Scripture with the words, in the beginning, God created. And we accept that. We accept the testimony because of who it comes from. It comes from God. And we know that God cannot lie. And then we come into the New Testament, and the Gospel of John picks up on that idea, and he begins with, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Here we're told that the world, it says here the worlds were framed, literally as I pointed out last week, the word worlds means ages. It's referring to the stages of human history. This is what we call the doctrine of dispensations. We begin with eternity past, here we have eternity future. They're all one and the same to God. The cross of Christ divides human history. He split history in two. In the Old Testament, we have basically two ages. The age of the Gentiles, or as some would say, the antediluvian, and then the age of Israel. Then with the resurrection of Christ, the descent of the Holy Spirit, we begin a new age which we refer to as the church age. Is that in the way? Oh, you want to move it on? You actually want people to see this? <laughs> the church age we know ends with the rapture of the church. By the way, I'm in eager anticipation because most of you may or may not know, Sunday begins the Feast of Trumpets. And many people believe that when Paul says at the last trump, he is referring to the Feast of Trumpets. We know that all the feasts have been fulfilled up until now. So we anticipate the possibility. I guess if it was at the last trump, the Feast of Trumpets lasts for two days, it would be on Tuesday sometime. If we're still here on Wednesday, I'm going to be bummed out. <laughs> God's timing is perfect, and my... Petty little ideas of what should happen are not going to intrude. After the rapture of the church, we have the tribulation period. Very interesting to notice that in the book of Revelation, the church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters. Then the church is seen in heaven in chapter 4 and 5. Once the tribulation begins in Revelation chapter 6, the church is never mentioned again. Not until chapter 19, 
Christ returns to this earth with the armies of heaven, that's us, along with the angelic brigades, and then you have the church referred to again and again. After the tribulation period, which ends with the second coming of Christ to this earth, we have a thousand years of the kingdom age. So when the author says, by his word, the worlds, really the word is ion, and it means ages. So the ages were all planned out by the word of God. They were framed. The word framed, as I said last week, is katartizo, a medical term. It's uh, a word that refers to the setting of a bone, to the mending of a wound, to putting things right. So God designed history in such a way that all things will be mended and put right in the end. So we have substance, evidence, testimony, and understanding. Scripture gives us understanding of things that we would not otherwise know. If you look at the bottom of your page, uh, the first point that I make from this is that faith may be seen in three stages. We talk about saving faith, then we talk about living faith, and then we talk about dying faith. In each stage, faith provides substance of the invisible realm, evidence of God's power, testimony both within and without an understanding of God's working in the world. The second point that I would make on the next page is that faith has to have a working object, and this is extremely important to understand. You know, people talk about strong faith. Someone has really strong faith. Well, from a biblical point of view, you know, a lot of times we throw around theological terms, and yet they're not linked to what the Scripture actually teaches us. We kind of develop our own idea. Well, and you'll hear people say this, well, my idea of God, which is about the most idiotic statement anyone can make. My idea of God doesn't change who God is. It might be pleasant. We may like it. It may be comforting. But is it really rooted in the scripture? So what we need to understand is that the power of faith is in the working object. For example, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you do not believe that Jesus is God. You read the same Bible that we read with, of course, changes that they've made, which they don't know their Greek or Hebrew or principles of exegesis or anything else. And so they say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, what do they say in the Watchtower Bible? A God. A God. Mm. I always ask them, how many gods do you guys have? Mm. The Bible tells us that there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So if you believe in a Jesus, but you deny his deity, you're not believing in the Jesus of the Bible. A Jesus who is not God come in human flesh cannot save you. Uh, and so our idea is not the important thing. The important thing is we want to know what the Scripture tells us. And Scripture tells us that the object of our faith is always in the Word of God. The living Word in His person and work, the written Word in what we have in Scripture. And we need to always stick to those things Faith is only as strong as the object. God reveals himself through his word. 
Faith looks through the Bible to Almighty God who is revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, four declarations of faith that we can actually draw from this, and that is, our blessed hope is a spiritual reality. Faith gives substance to the things that we hope for. The blessed hope of His glorious return, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 10.37. Secondly, that the invisible kingdom of God is real and is our eternal home. I hope that it's real to you. The more real it is to you, the easier your transition is going to be when it comes your time to transition out of this life and into the next. I have seen believers die, and I have seen believers die terrified because they lacked the substance of a knowledge of God's Word. Their object of their faith was not great enough, and therefore they're terrified. And you can ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you believe that you have eternal life? Yes. Why then are you so afraid? I don't know, but I'm just terrified. I've seen other believers die with a smile on their lips and hope in their heart and words of comfort or prayers for those around them as they make that transition. That's the way that we want to go. We want the moment of our death like every other moment of our life to be something we entrust into the hands of our Savior. Third, the only way to be commended by God is to live by faith. We're going to see in verse 6 that apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. These Old Testament saints received the testimony of God that they were pleasing to Him. But why were they pleasing? Well, He's going to, if, if, you know, if you could take a hammer and drive a nail and hit it about 20 times, That's what the author is doing in this chapter when he keeps saying, by faith, by faith, by faith. If there's anything that we want to get out of this chapter, it's the fact that what made these people unique, what made them stand out in biblical history is the fact that they chose to live by faith. And by the way, the author doesn't choose the cleanest or the neatest examples of Old Testament people. He chooses people who failed. He chooses people that faltered, that struggled, that stumbled. And I think he does that intentionally, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to give encouragement to us. If he had only picked the Josephs who withstood all temptation, the Daniels who remained faithful through every trial and difficulty, we'd look at it and we'd say, yeah, but, you know, I can't really identify with them because I struggle." But when we look at these people, as one guy said, this, everyone says it's the Hall of Heroes. It's really rogues gallery. Uh, these are people who were rough and tumble, rough around the edges, and yet people who prevailed. I mean, you think of Samson. We'll get to him in time. The fourth and final declaration here of faith is that both creation and history will be set right. There's the cotartizo, the mending the setting of the bone. History will be set right by God in time. And so we begin to realize just how powerful a statement it is in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith. It's so important that it forms the foundational theological position of Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Very important. 
I'm not going to delineate in each of these people that we're about to study these four things, but I'm going to do it in the first three. And then I'll let you do your own little investigation, and as you look at the others, you can find the substance, you can find the evidence, you can find the testimony, you can find the understanding. I'm going to help you out a little bit here at the beginning. Let's look at the faith of those before the flood. Here we are in the age of the Gentiles. The age of the Gentiles ended with the ark, the flood, and then, of course, Noah coming down on the earth with his family. It's going to be worthwhile to note that the three antediluvians that are mentioned here demonstrate an outline of the book of Ephesians. Think about it. Abel shows us worship. By faith, Abel offered. Enoch shows us walking. And then we have Noah working. Book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3, worship. Ephesians 4 and 5, walking. Ephesians chapter 6, working. That work, of course, involves warfare. So let's look here at Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God, this is verse 4, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness, there's that testimony from God, that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. He continues to convey a very important message to the world. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 4, because when Scripture references other places, it's always good to go back and just pick up what it has to say. Genesis chapter 4. <clears throat> just bring out a few highlights here in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and that knew means new in the intimate sense sexual relations, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired, your translation probably says, a man from the Lord. The Hebrew says, I have acquired the man from the Lord. What man was she talking about? Well, she was promised a seed in verse 15 that would crush the head of the serpent. So when she gives birth to Cain, she thinks, here he is. And in the process, well, it goes on, uh, she bore again, apparently the two were twins, doesn't refer to another conception. This time, his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Cain means acquired, and Abel means nothing. I mean, if you just gave birth to the Savior and then you have another one, what's he worth? He's nothing. Abel, just wind, nothing. Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Isn't it interesting, the phrase countenance fell? Have you ever seen someone whose countenance falls? It's so interesting. You see this a lot in little kids. 
they're going along and everything's fine and then you do something they don't like, it's like, my little granddaughter, while we were over in Australia, the one that we hadn't met since she was born, all the COVID stuff, she'd want me to play with her and sometimes I was busy studying and, and I'd say, no, I'll, I'll play with you later. And she would walk a little ways away and she'd go. <laughs> it's like one and a half years old, right? Kind of look at me. If I didn't do anything, she'd walk a little further toward the hallway. And then if I didn't do anything, she would go and climb in her sister's bed, cover her head up, and, you know, then I'd go tickle her and everything was fine. Countenance fallen. Cain's countenance has fallen. Why? A lot of people misunderstand what's going on here, and they say, well, God likes shepherds, but he doesn't like farmers. That's obviously not the point. The point is that they had a precedent that was set by God himself. And that precedent in chapter 3 was when God slew an animal to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Coupled together with the promise of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, it was a picture looking forward. I'm sure Adam, who was brilliant beyond any intellect that we have on the earth today, uh, was able to figure this out and, of course, convey the message to his son. Scripture doesn't always tell us everything we'd like to know. It tells us what we need to know. But it was very, very clear the kind of offering that God wanted. Cain chose to be obstinate and to bring his offering. In other words, a picture of human good. This is what I have done. This is what I have produced. Here is my offering. And it's the second picture of religion that we have as the story begins to unfold. The first picture of religion is when Adam and Eve make aprons of the fig leaves to cover themselves. In other words, no problem, God, we'll fix this. We'll resolve the problem. We can take care of it. And of course, it's never enough. So Cain's offering is rejected. It says in verse 6, so the Lord said to Cain, now God's being very gracious here, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if, if you do what I have made clear, I require, you'll be accepted. If you do not do well, then sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Uh, sin is pictured here as a ravenous beast, crouching, waiting to devour. By the way, it may not be very complimentary, but uh, part of the curse uh, was in verse 16 of chapter 3. If you'll just look back there to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The wording is exactly the same in the Hebrew. In the same way that sin seeks to dominate each and every one of us, there is a tendency oftentimes in the ladies, and I'm trying to be very gentle here, uh, to take control of the man. It's not the way God designed it. The man is the head of the house, the leader of the home. Uh, the woman is created to be his helper. Um, I've known people who have gone on the mission field and uh, convinced that this is the call of God for their life, 
The man says, God is calling us to go to whatever country. And the wife says, well, he may have called you, but he didn't call me. And the family ends up split because she didn't recognize her God-given role. You know, we have in the time that we live in the idea that to be a servant is an insult. It's an insult to be a servant. We want to be the person who's being served. Well, you can't have people being served without someone doing the serving. The Lord Jesus Christ made it very clear to the disciples, I am among you as he who serves. The Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of everything, came into this world and delighted in being a servant to each and every one of us. And really in God's plan and God's economy, becoming a good servant is the highest that any one of us will ever attain. The greatest thing that we can ask for when we stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is to hear those words, well done, good and faithful leader. Right? Now, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay? So sin is crouching at the door, God tells Cain, and you need to rule over him, over it. Then it says in verse 8, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So the first act of murder, first act of persecution uh, because of God's approval of what Abel had done. So if we look at Abel, both from this passage and what we see in Hebrews, what do we notice? We notice the substance of his faith. What was the substance of his faith? His offering shows that he believed in a sacrificial system which God had previously demonstrated, and I should have added here, and that pointed to Christ. All of the sacrifices throughout the entire Old Testament time were pointing to the cross, anticipating the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We see the evidence of his faith. His offering looked forward to and visibly portrayed the promised seed the coming Messiah and Savior. We see the testimony of his faith. The response of Cain demonstrated the convicting power of Abel's offering on him. Uh, even in, his, in this early form, the gospel comforts those that believe and convicts those that choose the path of unbelief. Mention the gospel in a crowd of people and watch how people react. Some people react just by moving away. Some people react uh, by, well, I can't believe the Bible, there's too many contradictions. I love that one because I always say, show me one. <laughs> they can't do it. <clears throat> I can't believe the Bible because of evil in the world. Well, actually, evil proves the existence of God. If there's no God, what is evil? How do you define evil? Evil is the opposite of good. Where does good come from? You have to have something to set the standard, and ultimately that's God himself. Um, we see here that uh, the blood sacrifice testified to the inadequacy of Cain's offering, showing that human good can never save us. That's, of course, something that is stressed all the way through the Bible. And then fourth, the understanding of his faith. Abel knew, based on the promise, and the sacrifice that God made for Adam and Eve, that the only atonement for our sins would be the sacrifice of a coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So here, the gospel in seed form begins to develop. The most important message from the very beginning after the fall of Adam and Eve is the redemptive plan of God. God had a plan to save mankind. God made it simple. He based the reception of eternal life on simple childlike faith. We want to be intellectual. We want to think that we're intelligent. We really know next to nothing. And we want to argue against the simplicity of faith. It's too easy. It's too simple. Surely we have to do something. Surely God expects something of me. No, he expects nothing from us because we have nothing to offer. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 7, I believe it's about verse 14, I know that in me that is in my flesh there dwells many good qualities. No. I know that in me dwells no good thing. We can talk about people who are good as opposed to people who are not good, but that is a rationalistic evaluation on our part. When you look at it from God's standpoint, his standpoint is absolute. You're either good or you're not. You're either righteous or you're not. Well, we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is the hope? Well, there's only been one righteous man who ever lived. One man who never thought a sin, never spoke a word of sin, never committed an act of sin. And he went to the cross so that on the cross he could trade places with us. He took our penalty, he took our judgment, and he offers us his righteousness. So when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? Number one, our sins are removed, our sins are forgiven, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It's placed to our account. It doesn't get any better than that. And so having the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the issue is no longer sometimes we stumble and fall, sometimes we tell a lie, sometimes we say a hurtful thing. Those are things that have to be dealt with in our life and among other people. But ultimately, before God, he always sees us first and foremost as having the righteousness of his own son. When God deals with a sin in a believer's life, he does it as a father to a child, not as a judge to a guilty party. He will discipline, he will correct, uh, but he always does it in love. That's coming up in Hebrews chapter 12. So moving on to Enoch. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken up, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Once again, those four elements are evident, and we'll turn to Genesis 5 and refresh our memory on Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Jared lived 162 years, and he begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years. It'd be nice to live that long, wouldn't it? The way the world's going, I don't know that I'd want to. Verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. 
By the way, Methuselah's name is uh, indicative of the flood. His name literally means when he dies, it will come. When he dies, it will come, the flood. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. This is the one indication in his life. How can we then find these four elements? Notice that first of all, Enoch's faith gave substance to the invisible God that he knew. We really need to link verse 6 with verse 5 because it's explanatory of what he just said about Enoch. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. In other words, that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Enoch's faith gave substance to the belief that God is, that he is eternally self-existent. His walk or his lifestyle gave evidence to the world around him that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There are rewards both in this life and in the life to come for those who seek God. We seek him through his word. We seek him through prayer. We seek him through fellowship as we gather together in groups like this. We seek him as we have a desire to express the nature of Christ in our lives. And all that time, we realize that he will reward those who diligently seek him. Third, he received the testimony from God that he pleased God. And of course, this gave a witness to the world. Should be a challenge to each and every one of us. The brief record of Enoch gives us an understanding that it's, uh, this life is only the beginning for those who believe. I mean, he lived 365 years, that's pretty long, but it's nothing compared to eternity. God took him, of course, is indicative of things yet to come. In the life of Enoch, as occurred in Genesis 5, we see the foundation laid for four great doctrines four great doctrines. Number one, the imminent and transcendent nature of God. He is infinite and far above us all, and yet he is very near to us. I should have included here the verse, I think it's in Acts 13, where Paul says he is not far from every one of us. You may be as far from God as you can get. You can run, but you can't hide. But he will never be far from you. At least not until that last moment on this earth, you breathe your last breath. And if your desire has been to get away from him, you will get your wish. By the way, God doesn't send people to hell. Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches people choose hell. People go to hell because they want to get away from God. And that is the eternal place where God is not there. Secondly, it's possible even for sinful men to please God through faith and obedience. It's possible for us to live a life that pleases God. It takes diligence, it takes study, it takes application, it takes prayer, it takes growth, but it's possible to please Him. Third, those who do please God will be richly rewarded in eternity. You know, the Bible talks a lot about rewards and unfortunately, Rewards are not very often taught about uh, in our churches, <clears throat> but it's an important teaching. Jesus said, for example, that if anyone gives a 
a child a cup of water in his name, they shall not lose their reward. Think about that. Think of how many little incidents, little opportunities that you and I have day by day to do things that are going to result in eternal reward. And of course, the highest rewards are the crowns. The crowns are all given for those who persist, persevere, continue to fight this spiritual battle to the end, and various qualities and characteristics of life. Uh, those who resist temptation through their lives are going to receive the crown of life. Uh, those who, like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, run in such a way they might win, they're going to get the unfading crown of glory. Uh, five different crowns are mentioned. We won't go into them right now unless you're really interested. I could cover that after class is over. Uh, but rewards are very important for us to understand. So the last of the doctrines illustrated by the life of Enoch is that the rapture is not without precedent. Not only in the life of Enoch, but in the life of Elijah. We have a preview of the rapture of the church. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, and this should really compel us to be sharing the gospel, sharing the good news with those around us, because just imagine, if the rapture were to take place Sunday or Tuesday, Feast of Trumpets, there would not be a believer left on the earth. And... Scripture indicates that those who have hardened their hearts and hardened their hearts and hardened their hearts are not likely to believe during the tribulation period. Very unlikely. Because they will have hardened themselves beyond the point of no return. Then begins seven years of the most horrible time in all of world history. Jesus said, there has not been a time like it. You read through history, you read of World War II, you read of the Holocaust, you go through scripture and you read of some of the battles where 60,000, 80,000 people are slain. Uh, you read about the uh, Assyrians and the Chaldeans uh, butchering and slaughtering pregnant women and babies and all the things that go on. Nothing can compare to what's coming. And it's one of the reasons that I'm looking up because I see the stage being set in the past couple of years for just this kind of thing. It'll be the greatest time of the loss of freedom and the enactment of tyranny that the world has ever seen under Antichrist and many other characters of like character, we'll say. No one in their right mind would want to be there. And yet the only way of escaping it, putting your faith in Jesus Christ now while the hand of God's grace is extended, while the offer of eternal life is given, and we have that opportunity to believe. That leads us to Noah, and I think we're going to save Noah for next week. So we'll close here and pick up with uh, Noah and what his life means. And as I said earlier, I'm not going to try to point out these four qualities with everyone as we go through. Uh, we'll look at the high points, the highlights, of what the lives of these great men and women accomplished, but you can take it on as a little assignment if you want. 
go through each of the characters and find the substance, the evidence, find the testimony, and so forth uh, that their faith demonstrated. So let's pray. We'll call it a night. Father, we're thankful for your grace, thankful for your word, which gives us light and illumination, tells us things that we could never arrive at through human discovery, human endeavor, human effort, uh, and we're able to receive those things by simple childlike faith. We do believe that the hour is late. We believe that the time is short. Uh, we pray as the last prayer in the Bible expresses, even so, come Lord Jesus. We long for that blessed hope to appear on the horizon of this world. And Father, we pray that in the meantime, we'll be faithful as we live our lives to the glory and the honor of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ himself. We pray these things in his name. Amen.